All right. <laughs> I'm back. Uh, you still like tone it down, please. Uh, so born unto us. This is up there. Again, my name, Paul Stiver, one of the elders here. Uh, we are going to do, you guys know how you do a Christmas sermon in January. Uh, no, this, we're, it'll be, there's, okay. Uh, it'll be fine. Um, so I did, though, thinking of January and New Year's Eve, um, does anyone like New Year's Eve as a holiday? Just quickly. We got, we got all right, we got a couple. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm going to put it in the top 10 of holidays, but um, I do, I like getting past it. Um, I like that there's football, probably. But it had me thinking, and so I actually put together a little year in review for us, a little year in review for our, for Hope Lower Town in 2023. So I'm actually going to spend about the first third of the time here just kind of looking at uh, where we've been, what God has done. We're going to look at some numbers. When we, when I put numbers up, uh, they're not, uh, numbers sometimes don't feel super spiritual, uh, but they, numbers aren't everything, right? We don't, oh, we had 400 people at this thing, and that was, that's how we knew ministry was going well. Uh, but numbers at the same time are not nothing, and it is helpful to see, kind of have numbers reflected back to us. So just going to walk through a bunch of stuff, kind of look back at our last year as Hope Lower Town. And so a couple things. First, uh, we went through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, the letter the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament there. Uh, so we actually had, I think, 36 sermons going through the first eight chapters of Romans. We'll actually kick that back up in chapter nine, coming up here in a second. Uh, we also spent the summer looking at not just another story and kind of seeing how these different stories in the Bible, different parables and other things kind of get flipped on their head uh, when we actually look in closer, that they're not just another story, but that they're something far greater that Jesus is trying to show us. So that was a little bit of where we kind of went on Sundays as a church. Uh, from an event standpoint, the men really were doing stuff, apparently. We did a lot of uh, events. So we had uh, uh, men's fire pit, we had men's breakfast, and then kind of bookending the year, we, at the beginning of the year, we had the men's night, which was here, and there was about 8,000 people in the church, so we were just huddled in one room, if you remember that. Uh, and then uh, the men's fall retreat happened this fall, uh, and so a lot of great events uh, for the guys. The ladies also had some events. I think I maybe am missing one or two, but there was Women of Hope Bible brunch? Am I missing? What am I? Okay. And then there, okay, I don't know. Something's being laughed about. You just got to keep moving as a communicator when that happens. Uh, so, and then, um, and then the Lower Town Women's Retreat was recent here. That's why it's so Christmas themed and it's graphic. Uh, so the women had a bunch of events this year that were great, as we again talked about our emphasis on community. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, Nolan did smash burgers at his place. Uh, and uh, we had baby dedications. Our, our youngest son was dedicated on May 21st. Uh, I think we did some other ones. So, and we do those, uh, ba the baby dedications kind of come around. If you have a baby and you're like, what's the dedication? Feel free to ask. Uh, we can talk through what it is. And if they haven't done it, it's really a fun time. Uh, we wanted to highlight the Smashburgers thing because Nolan just did that. Uh, he advertised it a little bit. Uh, we actually had, thinking of numbers, we had 12, I want to say 12 plus, and I'm always going to say plus today because I don't know I have the exact number, but we had 12 plus community events in 2023, different things where we could gather together and hang out, whether it was men, women, or combined. Um, but Nolan just did that. If you're thinking like, I have a, something I like and I would want to kind of create an event, 
Um, the slogan for Nike is just do it. And it's also for our events. Just do it. You can just do it. If you'd like to have it advertised, you can uh, talk to us and get a slide and an announcement on a Sunday. But there's no, like, if you have something you think this would gather people and, and it'd be fun, I'd like to do it, do it. There's nothing spiritual necessarily about smash burgers besides a little bit how they taste. But like, otherwise, uh, no, but like, it's just a great idea. So, so if you do feel led to host an event, feel free to do that. We also did have our annual church picnic. I want to say this is fourth one. Ben, you grill. How many of you times have you grilled? Three. Great. That's close to four. So we had our, our Thorntown church picnic. This year was a little different though in that we had two baptisms. And so that was really exciting. Two baptisms at our church this year. Uh, we want to keep that going. So we're going to actually be offering kind of a regular baptism class for those that maybe haven't been baptized, want to learn more. Why would you actually stand in front of people and declare your faith? Um, in addition to two baptisms, we actually had six people become covenant members of Hope Lower Town in 2023, which is a significant thing. That's a, that's what, but you ask why? Why is that significant? Well, if you think about the idea of a covenant, you are making an agreement with another party to say, no, I'm committed to this. And that's what a marriage is, for example. I'm, I'm committed to sticking it out, and we're going to do this together. And, I, and so covenant membership looks like a lot of things. It looks like serving, giving, and other things. But then you get the benefit of having a voting voice. You get the benefit of having uh, care uh, come to you when you need it, and all kinds of other things. But we'll talk a little bit more about why I belong to a church in a second. Um, we did uh, two outreach events. This was me, and then I was joined by a couple others at the Marydale Festival, which is just over here in North End, a little uh, day thing. And it was we had a blast. We just had a wheel that kids spun and got free candy and snacks. Uh, and uh, they would spin the wheel. Every uh, thing on the wheel got a prize. And kids would come up and spin, and they'd be like, all this is free? And I was like, it is free. And that's how Jesus works. I didn't tell him that, but it is. I did. I wasn't going too hard on that. But that's how grace works, right? They spin the wheel and they get something. It's just how it goes. Uh, it was a really fun time. Uh, and I, I think we'll go back again and hopefully rally a bigger crew to kind of create a name and, and just show who we are to the neighborhoods of St. Paul. Uh, another outreach event, we, we did uh, some judging at the Journey School. That was, I wasn't at that, but I heard it was great. Um, we also had six babies in 2023. Okay, thank you. I mean, that was very silent, a pregnant pause, if you will. Uh, so um, that's baby humor for you. Uh, we had a, so that's a, through the couple baby showers. One is yet to come, but uh, I threw it up there anyway. And then a new dads event, which is a really fun thing we do, where the dads of Hope Lower Town rally around the new dads and uh, give them none of the answers because we don't have them either. But uh, really excited about the six babies in 2023, they call that sometimes, this is going to be a joke here, they call that Dutch evangelism. Uh, it's a church growth strategy. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll leave it at that. Uh, and then um, with it, that though, we had uh, take them a meal. I know this is about food because the L is an asparagus, um, creative. Uh, so um, we actually, as a church, brought uh, those families uh, 83 meals in 2023. So every family essentially had two weeks of meals covered by people of our church, um, which is no small thing, right? That is, I mean, you think about, uh, there was a time when someone brought us a meal. Uh, he actually mentioned that he, he was bringing us a lasagna and he dropped it in the driveway. 
So you had to just buy us a store-bought lasagna, but they had made a homemade lasagna. I felt terrible, but I actually really needed that visit. Our youngest son was actually in the hospital at the time. And so it was just me and our oldest son, and he came over with the lasagna, and it like, was refreshing to my soul to have someone there with me. These things mean a lot. Um, in March of 2021, we struggled to fill a nine-slot meal plan as a church. We were having a hard time. I remember signing up for doubles sometimes. In uh, 2023, 17-slot meal plan was filled in two weeks. So just a huge culture shift for how we are caring for each other, thinking about one another, serving one another there. So really something to celebrate there and emblematic of what God's doing in our church and forming us together. Another thing, LDI, is I'm on staff with as part of my role, uh, our Leadership Development Institute, classes, seminars, retreats, internships. A few of us are going to the LDI Winter Retreat on uh, next weekend. Uh, but we had uh, people from Lower Town participate in these four events. Um, and it's actually all told with class time, homework time, etc. I added it up and we had 50 plus hours of discipleship across these four opportunities. And we're actually excited for more. This year, you guys can do any of the LDI things. They're a part of a central service. So any location can, can take these. I'm doing a seminar on suffering. Uh, in the spring here. And then um, we, Brian and I have systematic theology again in the spring here. Um, and then uh, with that too, we're hoping maybe to offer some more lower town centric or lower town based classes this year as well. So look out for those. I want to highlight small groups. This is a picture of a bunch of kids holding full-size carrots. Um, this is from our small group. I think it was a Christmas party. And uh, one of the kids had a full-size carrot and created a trend of all the kids wanting full-size carrots. <laughs> so here they are uh, celebrating with their carrots. Um, I want to highlight from a numbers standpoint, in our small groups, now this is including kids, we currently have four small groups. We have 58 people in those four small groups, including children. Uh, I want to say there's 21 kids, soon to be 22 uh, in the small groups. Uh, we have 12 small group leaders. We had one interim small group leader. This year, and then we actually trained or brought on five new small group leaders this year. Uh, and then, um, and just real quick, where this fits in Lower Town's ministry, our, our kind of line is we, we gospel in community on mission. And so we, the gospel kind of is the foundation of everything we do here. And then community is that second thing. We, we always joke and say community is our middle name, but it really is central to clinging to the faith and growing in the faith, being in community. And so that's small groups fit right in there, that they help keep us sane, they help keep us following Jesus, they encourage our hearts, and they do so much more in uh, giving us people that we connect to in a close way and talk about Jesus with and, and kind of help uh, hold us accountable. And then also that will turn around and help us serve others. Um, so I highly recommend that, not only for what it, where it fits in our ministry strategy, but just in your Christian life how relevant, how important it is to have other people around you that care about you in a way that you might not get in your everyday life. Um, and then uh, I want to move on to highlighting quickly uh, uh, volunteering. And so this is just our volunteer slide. We kind of have different lanes. So there's children's, there's uh, AVL or soundboard hospitality, which is kind of helping people uh, get coffee and different stuff that doesn't just, the coffee doesn't just appear on Sundays. I wish it did, um, but it doesn't. Uh, and then worship team. Uh, and so those are kind of the lane, the biggest lanes. And then small group leadership is kind of the other big serving lane, hosting events, some of those things. But uh, we have, uh, in 2023, we had 32 plus leaders, I always do the plus, uh, serve in some format, sometimes multiple formats, 
uh, putting in, actually, if I did the math and you factor in meetings and you factor in kind of small group leadership and meeting, I think up to almost a thousand hours of volunteering and, and care for the church from people serving in our church this year, uh, which is unreal. That's amazing. When you think about that's something you're electing to do because you care about something. That's pretty special. Um, so, and then with that, we added six new children's volunteers which is huge, uh, and I w- would keep adding more, please. Um, and then uh, we had, this year, we had 26 uh, right, kind of regular kids come through, seven visitors. Our average per week was 14, which was up from, I want to say, six two years ago. Uh, maybe not, yeah, six, So that, which is just unreal to see uh, uh, how God is working and even in our children's ministry. Um, AVL Hospitality, we had people serve there and always need more there as well. We love that. Um, We added leads this year. So there's kind of a point person for each of these categories, which is really huge to have a connection point. And then worship, uh, we've been blessed to have great worship all year. uh, And and so that it's really, any of this stuff is a combination of how God has wired you and what a need of the church is. Uh, and then stepping in and filling that. And actually, we find ourselves blessed in that. As we get to use our gifts, we get to see uh, what, how God has wired us, and we get to live it out and enjoy that. So I'd encourage you to consider serving. There's all kinds of ways to sign up. There's QR codes around the building you can scan. Um, you can do it on the Get Connected form. We can find a way to get there. And then no one's going to add a page to the app as well for us um, for serving. And then uh, we also, we added an elder in 2023. We can... All right, um, so uh, these are, and if you're looking at these photos, you're like, why did he choose those? Uh, that's what Ben puts on his Facebook. He's, this is a Ben's photos. I, uh, so, uh, so this is, we added Ben Jones as an elder, actually completing a, I was looking back, so it was February of 2023 when Ben was standing up here to be commissioned with Emily to go through the process and the pipeline of eldership. And, but then there had been a kind of previous like six months going back into, I think, the summer of 2022, kind of the vetting and just getting to know. And um, so really that, I mean, that's the end of a large, a long process, a very exciting thing that God has done for us and helping us oversee, care for the church, care for Brian as the lead pastor and just have more of a team dynamic. So very excited about that. Uh, and then we had 51 services and one Christmas Eve service. So overall, 52 services here at Hope Lower Town in this building, renting and loving it and caring for this place and uh, being blessed by this place. And um, so very thankful for that uh, and, and getting to host all the locations on Christmas Eve. And then, of course, everything else. There's so much in one year as a church that I didn't hit on, uh, whether it's fireside room conversations after church, one-on-ones, um, the meals that aren't mentioned, the informal events that, I, that aren't highlighted, the visits, the tears, the sweat, the text messages, the encouragement, the hugs, the prayers. Um, there's so much more that we don't see. And, you know, I think in our culture right now, and it's very common, we kind of have this, we fall into this misconception. And that is that, that freedom comes from not having obligations. True freedom is not having obligations and responsibilities. If I can just kind of dictate my own time, uh, then, then I'll be truly free. And I, that's, when you look at what it takes, though, to belong deeply to a church, we have this misconception that being free from commitment is, is where freedom is. But when, it, when you see what it takes to belong to a church, that actually uh, that doesn't reflect back reality. 
right? That, that I can't just say, no obligations, no commitments, that's freedom. That actually being in a church brings greater freedom. Yes, I have more obligations, I have more commitments, but I have more people that care for me. We had 12 people help us move. Who, nobody likes moving. 12 people helped us move. Why? Because we belong to a church. Because that matters. Because there's a bond that goes deeper than what we are used to. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, so again, we think that we're protecting ourselves by avoiding commitments, but what if it's actually holding us back? Um, just personally for me, I, and I just know how much I need the church and I need our small group community. I struggle when I'm alone, I particularly struggle to believe the truth. And I need people in my life that can say, I, how, how are you thinking about that? Are you sure about that? Or just plain out say, that sounds dumb. Uh, right? We need friends like that in our lives that can help us think more clearly because we don't do well alone. So as we close just here, why belong to a church? Why give? Why commit? We can talk about the theology. And there is beautiful theology around it. God set it up this way. God actually set up that after Jesus, we would have a church family to belong to until he comes back. That helps keep us sober and sane and wise and following him. But this is also where we get care. Being in a church is where our hearts find care, where people rally around us when times don't make sense. And they, they will not. They don't always. Um, we live in a world right now that there is a loneliness epidemic. People feel more isolated, polarized, tribalistic, confused, disconnected, loss of meaning, loss of purpose than ever before. And here in the church, we find obviously still some of that because we're all broken. But we also find rest and comfort and healing and people that genuinely care about us with no skin in the game except that we belong to Christ together and we belong to this church together. In the church, we find hope and grace. And so that's how God cares for us. A lot of his care comes to us through the hands and feet of those in this room. Uh, so with that said, I just want to remind you all and remind myself that belonging to Hope Lower Town is really a gift. It's really a blessing. It's really a grace from God. Um, I don't know where I'd be without this church. And so just want to encourage you in that. As we kind of reflect on the year, I'll try not to cry because it makes it weird when the guy cries up front uh, and they see even the mic doesn't like it. And so, um, but all right, all right, enough of that. Enough recap of that. Let's get into the sermon. So again, we're looking at Born Unto Us. We're kind of been comparing these birth stories in the Bible with the birth story of Jesus who was born unto us. And this week's sermon is called Jesus the true emancipator. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10, which is the birth story of Moses. Last week, we looked at Samson. We kind of saw that there are things about this, this kind of larger-than-life figure in Samson that we can kind of see and contrast with Jesus and see how Jesus is so much greater, so much more beautiful than even Samson, who was this deliverer, kind of this flawed deliverer of the Old Testament. Today, we're going to look at kind of Moses' birth, and we're going to take Moses' birth and look at it through the lens of Jesus. And I actually want to conclude by looking at how Jesus bore our reproach, or how he was, in a sense, disgraced. And so, first thing we'll look at is Moses' birth. And so, we're going to get a little context here. We're going to get into Exodus chapter 1 and 2 here for Moses' birth. But just for context in the Bible storyline, we kind of had the, the, um, the people of Israel come from Abraham— and then the promises continue with Isaac and Jacob. And then one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, they all flee to Egypt. And Joseph kind of rises in leadership in Egypt. And we have this crazy story about his life there in Egypt. 
But he, then all of the Israelites had gone there because of a famine and the Pharaohs knew Joseph. So they kind of had him as a mediator to know the Israelite people. But as Joseph passed on and a new king rose, uh, or I think that Joseph might even still be alive in this setting. I, I'm not sure. But a new king rose who didn't know Joseph. And now they're going to say, well, we have all these people occupying our land. We've got to do something about it. And here's what they chose in Exodus chapter 1. Then a new king arose, or then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Okay, so we can have this fear-based mindset here from the king of Egypt or the pharaoh about the people that are occupying this land. And so they start to deal shrewdly with them. And if you're familiar with the story, they start making them build and then they pile on, they take away different things to make the building even harder. These people become enslaved, right? So we have this kind of uh, bitterness developing, this injustice developing. There's oppression upon oppression for the Israelite people in Egypt. It continues on here to the point that the oppression gets so bad that the king says, kill all the newborn boys. Kill all the newborn boys. We see that here in continuing on in Exodus 1. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sh uh, Shipra and Pua, apparently. You just got to say it like you mean it. Um, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool. If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They left the boys live. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. This was like, I looked this up in commentaries. They were like, eh, I don't know if this was what was really true. Is this is what they said. Is this what, because uh, it feels like birth, it kind of happens the way it happens. I don't know if like there's just like a reason you're better at giving birth. I don't think so. But <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> okay, weird sidebar. Here we are. So, um, but what we need to see here is, uh, is what's happening and that the oppression has gotten so bad that, that they're trying to cut off the line of the Israelites by not letting the boys live. The goal there is to cut off so they don't make any more descendants. Now let's get to Moses' birth, Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, this is Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. I mean, already just a wild scene, right? You, you're, you know you've birthed a child into a time when that child's life is at stake, that the king has issued an edict to kill that child. So they hide him and then she puts him in a basket and just places him in the water. And Miriam's there watching. We continue on in the narrative. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? So this is Miriam there. She's there and she asks, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? 
Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the, so the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew over, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Do you see what's happened here? So this child was born into persecution, gets found by Pharaoh's daughter. Miriam is just there and is like, hey, should I, maybe I'll get, you want this child, he's going to need to be nursed. What if I go get one of the Hebrew women? And it's Moses' mother. Uh, in the, the commentary, the Africa Bible commentary we use a lot here, Takumba Areemo says, the princess would have had to arrange for someone to breastfeed the child. And Miriam, knowing this, took the initiative and offered to get one of the Hebrew women. She did not mention that the one she would bring was the child's mother. The princess accepted her offer, and in a delightful mix of God's providence and his humor, arranged to pay Moses' mother to nurse him. Thus Moses would have spent his early formative years with his Hebrew mother, who would have taught him about the Lord and his promises to their ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> we've, women in our church have given birth recently and are nursing, and we'd probably like to be paid for it. I think that would fit right there. But if, just do you see this, though? The princess accepted her offer in a delightful mix of God's providence and his humor. There's no better storyteller than God. This is beyond Shakespearean, right? That Moses' mother is getting paid to nurse him. In this time of persecution and almost certain death, instead, this grace. God turns evil into laughter. And then furthermore, he gets to spend his early years with his mother learning his history, understanding the God of the promises. And then obviously he goes back and lives in Pharaoh's house and we have Moses' life. I kind of just want to walk through some things of Moses' life. We kind of see them in pop culture and in regular just Bible reading, but many things happen. He grows up in the house of Pharaoh. In fact, some consider maybe he was in line to be king. Uh, he uh, later leaves his people, uh, leaves the Egyptians to be with his people, the Jews. He knew he was Jewish, and, but he murders an Egyptian at first to, to show, hey, I'm here to deliver. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? So then he flees and he's confused and he ends up seeing a burning bush and it's God appearing in a theophany uh, and telling him, go to the people. You are going to be the mediator for my people. You're going to deliver my people. So Moses does, right? He goes back to Pharaoh and uh, brings the plagues upon Pharaoh. And sometimes we look at that and we say, I don't know. I don't know if I like God and his wrath there. Uh, but we have to see, we already just saw a little bit, Pharaoh actually brings the first evil into the story. Pharaoh's the one that's actually bringing plagues upon the Israelites. And God gives Pharaoh every chance to repent and he never does. So I don't think we can necessarily sit in the judgment seat of God on how he acts in that Pharaoh story as much as maybe we would like to. Uh, but Moses goes and he delivers and, and, and the people are delivered out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea um, and he receives the stone tablets on the mountain of the Ten Commandments and he walks down the mountain and the people who have just been delivered are worshiping a golden calf. And he throws the tablets down, and which has got to be awkward because he's got to go back to God and be like, hey God, I little flip up here and uh, I need more stone tablets. Um, but God does give him more stone tablets. 
And he brings the law covenant to the people, leads them through the wilderness, but we know he's not without flaw. There's the big scene where uh, God tells him to, uh, to speak to the rock and it will pour out water for a grumbling people. But instead, in his anger, Moses strikes the rock and it pours out water for a grumbling people. And so, in fact, Moses misses out on the promised land because of his sin. Uh, and so then we see him not kind of, he gets to see it, but he doesn't go in. Um, but he concludes there his life on the mountain, kind of delivering the sermons that are the book of Deuteronomy. And so just looking at him as an emancipator, it's kind of a tiny list here. There's so much about Moses' life. He was persecuted, nearly killed in his birth. He was unrecognized by his people. He was called, equipped, and sent by God. He leaves the royalty of Pharaoh's house to be associated with his people. Uh, he intercedes for his people. He actually institutes the Passover. He is the deliverer who frees God's people from slavery and oppression. He is the mediator of the law covenant. He leads people through the wilderness. He struck the rock. He is a prophet. And then again, he dies outside the promised land. Moses is the best of religious humanity. He is as good as we get, and he failed. Um, and so he's an incomplete mediator. He's an incomplete emancipator which if you've been around Hope for any amount of time, you know that we need a better one, right? So we need a better emancipator and we actually have a bigger problem. So let's look through the lens of Christ here. As, if you've been around Hope, you know I use this all the time. Nick Cage from National Treasury is looking at the Declaration of Independence, trying to decipher what it says. And he puts the glasses on and he's like, oh, actually I, I watched the clip yesterday. He calls the glasses, I swear He's holding them. He goes, the, the guy go, the other guy goes, what is this? He goes, some kind of ocular device. Oh, what a genius. Some kind of ocular device, you say. Um, I just, Nick Cage, man, he's the best. Well, anyway, so he puts the glasses on and he can see. And we always use this to talk about reading the Old Testament. When we put the lens of Christ on, the Old Testament starts to make sense in ways we never thought that it could. And so we put on our ocular device and we look at the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus does this himself. In Luke 24, he says, he said to them, these, these kind of people walk in on the road to Emmaus, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And now this is actually, when it says Moses here, it's kind of referring to the first five books of the Bible, but it also does mean Moses. He said, see how Moses was like me. And so what that is, is actually called typology. Brian's mentioned it recently as well. Typology is just comparison, really. And it's, it's looking at people, events, or things that point to Jesus. And so just a quick definition here. Biblical typology, a type is a real person like Moses, a real event, Day of Atonement, or a thing like a lamb that God has ordained as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus's person and work. He set it up to point to something even more, right? That's really all typology is. It's, uh, and some of the, we, so that means, by the way, we can read our Bible and ask at any point, how does this connect to Christ? How does this person show us more of who Jesus is? We're going to do it with Moses here in a second. But the Bible actually will talk about this. The New Testament will call it type or shadow. And it made me think about the viral video of the little girl that is afraid of her own shadow. It's kind of a mean video, but it's also a little funny. Like she's running and she's, ah! and she like is afraid of her own shadow. And I think, what would we tell her? The shadow is not the real thing. The shadow isn't the real thing. It's actually just a contour of you. You're the real thing. 
But in this, in the Bible, we see Moses or any of the characters of the events that aren't Christ are just a shadow. They just have contours that resemble the real thing. And so when we look at Moses, we see he's actually just pointing us as he, himself as an emancipator to a different and greater emancipator. I don't know why I chose to put the world's tiniest list on the screen for you, but enjoy that. <laughs> you can get the slides later from the podcast if you actually want to read it. Um, but I just wanted to compare these two individuals. Again, this is typology. This is not, you don't need a degree to do this. You don't need uh, to go to a seminary to do this. You just need to read the Bible and say, how does this person compare to Christ? So let's look at these two gentlemen here. Moses and Jesus, persecuted, nearly killed in his birth. And the same for Jesus in Matthew 2, persecuted by Herod, nearly killed in his birth. Unrecognized by his people, Moses coming first in violence as a deliverer, Jesus coming uh, from Galilee, and they're like, ah, who's this guy? Um, that's my impression of them. Uh, and then both called, equipped, and sent by God. Uh, both come from royalty. Moses comes out of Pharaoh's house from royalty. Jesus leaves the royalty of heaven to unite himself with us, a despised people. Moses intercedes for people bringing the plagues. Jesus intercedes for people bearing the plague of God's wrath against sin. Moses instituted the Passover. Jesus is the lamb in the final Passover. He's the true lamb. Moses is a deliverer who frees God's people from slavery and oppression in Egypt. Jesus is a deliverer who frees God's people from the slavery to sin, the oppression of sin. This is actually a wild, we see the Bible always do these kind of physical to spiritual different things, right? Like physical lamb to spiritual, Jesus is the lamb, right? Kind of this concept. And here we see this in the Exodus story. And we went through the book of Exodus a couple years ago. We see that there's, a, there's physical oppression and bondage and injustice, and that's very real. But then the Bible also paints this picture of a spiritual oppression and bondage that we are all under, that we are oppressed by sin and need a deliverer and emancipator to set us free. Moses is the mediator of the law covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, the grace covenant. In fact, Jesus is the one who fulfills the law covenant. Moses led people through the wilderness. Jesus leads us by his spirit in the wilderness we walk through until he returns. Moses struck the rock. Jesus, 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, is, Jesus is the rock who was struck from which life flows. Moses was a prophet. Jesus, actually in Moses' words here from Deuteronomy 17, is the true prophet who comes from among the brothers. Moses dies outside the promised land. Jesus dies to bring us into the promised land of the new creation that, where we will actually experience full freedom, full liberation, complete justice, complete life. So we ask, how, how and why is that relevant? Why do this typology? Why is that relevant to my life today? And so I want to look at the disgrace of Christ here. Why make these connections? And so actually, I want to go back New Testament again. And now the New Testament here is interpreting the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather, to enjoy, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking to his reward. So uh, J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican minister, uh, highlighted this in his uh, commentary on this passage. He said, Moses gave up and refused rank and greatness, pleasure, in fact, all the pleasures of Egypt. Again, he was royalty and riches, all the treasures of Egypt, and instead chose suffering and affliction, the company of a despised people, 
reproach and scorn. Again, it says, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I started thinking about us in our lives. Do we give up and refuse living for rank and greatness? Do we give up and refuse living for our pleasure? Do we give up and refuse living for greater riches? Do we choose suffering and affliction? Do we choose the company of a despised people? Do we choose reproach and scorn? I'll just go one by one through these, just quickly. Living for rank and greatness, we're told to do it every day. We're told that our life is all about what we can hang on the wall, uh, how much we can accomplish, who we can impress, um, and how great we can become. We're told uh, to choose self. You realize that in every relationship, every day, whether it's a spouse, child, friendship, family member, we have a choice, a million choices a day. I can choose myself or I can choose them. I can choose the sacrifice. And we're told by our culture, you choose you. But what would that do to those relationships if I always chose me? But we're, so in that sense, we're ruled by our autonomy. Secondly, living for pleasure, we're ruled by our appetites. We look at things and we say, my life will be better if I just have blank. If I can just have that thing, then I, I'll be okay. You know the word that describes living for our appetites best is more. Because when we live for things in this world that we hope will give us full pleasure, we always need more. It's never enough. So we find ourselves ruled by our appetites and we say, I can't, I, I'm told my heart decides what is best for me. I can't let God dictate what is best for me. Finally, we live for greater riches. And I actually want to take this the way of uh, we don't choose reproach and scorn. Many of our, for those of us in the room that are followers of Christ, we live under this fear of rejection. A fear of reproach and scorn for saying, I follow Jesus. I believe his teachings. I hold to what the Bible says. Jesus actually is very precious. He means more to me than anything. We're afraid to lose friends by saying that. We're afraid to tell the truth about that. We actually have a fear of rejection that rules over us. We have, whether it's autonomy, appetites, or fear of rejection, we're kind of living under these. We're oppressed by them. And you say, well, I'm not, I don't think I actually follow Christ. Uh, so I don't deal with that. Oh, I guarantee you do. I guarantee your relationships suffer because of your choice. I guarantee there's things in your life that you want to not have as a vice that you do. I guarantee that there's ways you live for someone else's approval and if they don't think highly of you, you're crippled by it. You're, you're humble. You can't handle it. So we tend to be ruled by autonomy. We tend to be ruled by appetite. We tend to be ruled by fear. We need then an emancipator. We need freedom. And that's where Jesus comes in. Romans 15.3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus took our reproach and removed our disdain for God, ironically here it says. Jesus gave up his rank and greatness to suffer among a despised people, perfectly doing God's will, not pleasing himself, not choosing autonomy, but entrusting himself to the Father, laying down his autonomy to suffer, so that we could now have freedom from being ruled by our own autonomy. I need freedom from thinking I can live for freedom. Does that make sense? So, right, but he's saying, he actually is going to take that away. 
He's going to take our reproach so that we can have now rank and honor, that we actually get his righteousness because he did not be ruled, he was not ruled by his autonomy. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you understand the greatest pleasure in the world is being in the presence of God? That's how the Bible depicts it. Jesus lost that, being treated as sin for us, so that we now can have fullness of joy. He frees us then from needing more. Because he's enough. He's the one thing that is enough to satisfy. He's the true emancipator who frees us from our autonomy, from needing more and being ruled by our appetites, but he also frees us from fear of rejection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what it says here? Jesus was rejected by God for those of us who reject God so that we now could come back. The one who was sinless was treated as sin. Jesus took the ultimate scorn, the ultimate rejection so that we could know we have God's ultimate approval. The only approval that truly matters. So Jesus then sets us free from a fear of rejection. That I know when I see God face to face, I'm in. Because my faith is in Christ. Not because of anything I've done, good or bad. Because Christ has done this. So then I'm set free from living from fear of rejection, from living for my appetites, from living for my autonomy. I actually have true freedom in Christ. And that freedom casts out fear. 1 John 4, 18, 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, when you get up as a communicator to preach, there's like nerves and different anxieties and tensions. You've put in work throughout the week. You want the sermon to hit people spiritually and meet them where they're at. You want people to worship Jesus but there's a sense in which you're afraid. <laughs> it hit me this morning. I'm preaching under the smile of God because of what Christ has done. I was thinking about like when I watch my kid, maybe, you know, my kid will grow up and play t-ball. I'm not going to watch him be like, man, he better not do poorly. Everything he does, I'm going to be like, amazing. Did you see him run to first base? while well, he ran to the pitcher's mound, but eventually he got to first base. I'm just going to be delighted. Why? Because love casts out fear. Love casts out punishment. Love takes away performance. And that's what God's love is like. So then when we respond to God in love, it's only because he's done this for us. He's shown us on the cross his perfect love, his father's posture. We see this in the parable of the prodigal son coming home. And we see that fear is non-existent in the arms of the father. The son had never in this scene felt more loved, more accepted, more approved of than right here. That's the gospel. That's why we compare Moses to Jesus because Jesus is the one who brings us into the arms of the father because his arms were outstretched on the cross. We can now be brought in to the closed arms, the comforting arms of the father. So then we can find life not in status, 
not in autonomy, not in pleasure experiences, not in our appetites, not in approval of someone else, but we find, we find God's love for us and it sets us free to live from a place of approval and joy, to be free from what oppresses us because Jesus is the true emancipator. So as we close, uh, we just return to Jesus, the true emancipator. That's it. Whether it's first time today, you're like, no, today is the day. I'm going to put my faith in Christ or the thousandth time. As we take this communion, we get communion on both sides. We've got the bread, which represents Christ's body broken for us, the juice, which represents his blood shed for us. Realize you can return to Jesus, the true emancipator, over and over again for freedom and grace in a time of need. So we're going to sing together. We're going to take communion. We're going to uh, close the time here. So I'm going to pray and the worship team, or well, Zach is going to come back up, the one-man band, and then we'll, we'll sing and close out the service, taking communion together. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you that your plan included saving us when it didn't have to. We thank you that you sent your Son to set us free from that which enslaves us, that which oppresses us. And you've given us freedom and grace and approval that we get to live our lives under your smile, no matter what, because of what he has done and the fact that we have put our faith in him. So God, I pray our hearts would worship and praise you today. And this week, God, I pray you'd set us free from being enslaved by our appetites, from being enslaved by the approval of others, from being enslaved by our own desire to have control and choice. God, and that we would just do what you wish for us, that we would delight in what you've done for us. So help us to praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.